This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Well, good morning. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, we started a new series last week uh, called The First Christmas Carols. And we said last week that the uh, first few chapters of the Gospel of Luke are a bit like a musical. Everybody seems to be uh, breaking into song. You can go back one slide there, Oliver. Uh, there you go. Yeah. Um, everybody seems to be breaking into song in those first few chapters of, of Luke. And last week, we looked at the first of the song, Mary's song, which is called the Magnificat. This week, we're looking at Zachariah's song, which is uh, called the Benedictus, after the Latin translation of the first words, Benedictus Dominus, blessed be the Lord. Zechariah was a priest. His wife Elizabeth was pregnant further along a little bit than their cousin Mary. And we've already read some of the words of this song as a part of our worship already this morning. We're going to sing it in a few minutes here. Um, But before we do that, let's look at it together uh, along with the events that come just before. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 1. If you're new to the Scriptures, uh, Luke is in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, so about two-thirds of the way through the Bible. And if you're using one of the Bibles in the rows there, it's page 856, and we are... It's also printed for you in your bulletin that you could follow along as well. Luke chapter 1, I'm going to start reading from verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, no. He shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately Zechariah's mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea, and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Eternal Father, you have given us the scriptures for our guidance and for our comfort. 
And so would you turn us again to your holy word this morning, that we may have a lamp for our feet, a light for our path. And as we draw encouragement from the teaching this morning, may we cherish hope both for this life and for the life to come. We pray it all through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, I didn't grow up with a a whole lot of familiarity with the Bible, uh, but in my late teens and my early 20s, I I became interested in the Scriptures. And as I started to read, one of the things that struck me almost right away was that though the Bible seemed to be hopeful about God's work in the world, it also vividly displayed and spoke to the reality of pain and suffering and injustice in the world. Darkness, you might say. And in some ways, this is what the season of Advent is supposed to be about, supposed to give us a chance to consider. Before we get to Christmas, we start in the darkness. And that's why we light candles progressively throughout the season of Advent, imaging God's mission of bringing light into the dark places in the world. And you see this idea at the end of Zechariah's song, don't we? Verse 78, he says, Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. I wonder if we really take the time to do that, to contemplate the reality of the darkness, the extent of the darkness that exists in the world. My friend Kevin Jameson shared a photo with me once, this is a while back, by a man named Kevin Carter. Kevin Carter was a South African photographer who went to the Sudan in the early 90s to document the atrocities uh, that were happening there. He took what became a very famous photograph of a malnourished little girl struggling to crawl across a field to get to a food station. And in the picture, a vulture was eyeing her because it knew she was on the brink of death. You may have seen the photo. Kevin took this photo, chased the vulture away, made sure the little girl got to the food station, and then he sat down under a tree, smoked a cigarette, and cried. The New York Times picked the photo up and ran it on the front page, and there were very mixed reactions. Some were horrified that the New York Times would run this photo. Some were horrified that Kevin Carter would take this photo. Was he a vulture, exploiting this little girl's misery in order to make a living? Did he do enough? to help her. Others said he was doing his part. He was documenting the darkness. In fact, the photo did alert many in the West to what was happening in the Sudan at the time. And it can be argued real changes came because of folks documenting things like this, the documentation of things like this, relief teams and financial aid and even foreign government intervention. The photo won the Pulitzer Prize, the highest honor in Kevin Carter's field, and yet three months later, he took his own life. He left several notes for friends and family apologizing and saying he just couldn't handle the darkness. He just couldn't handle what he had to see. What do you do with the darkness that exists in the world? Some despair and are overcome by it. Others prefer to ignore the darkness, to pretend that it doesn't exist, or try to numb it away in some fashion, but that's really hard to do, to persistently ignore the darkness that is out there in the world. It's out there in the world, and it's often not very hidden from us. 
There's also darkness in our own lives, is there not? In our families and in our hearts, manifest in doubt and shame and struggle. Is there any hope? And this is kind of a bummer to start things off this morning, but I'm trying to, to get us past the kitschy sentimentalism of very often how Christmas is celebrated and show you why Advent is important as we prepare for Christmas. Advent begins in the dark. It's a call to battle, not to give in to despair or to ignore uh, the darkness or to numb ourselves against it, but a call to battle against the darkness. Why? Because that's what God is doing. Christmas is about God's mission to bring light into the darkness, the light of the world stepping down into darkness of sin and misery and hurt and heartache. God is not an absentee landlord who has left the world to decay. But Zechariah begins his song in verse 68 by praising God. Why? Because he has visited and redeemed his people. He stepped down into the darkness in the person of Jesus Christ. And so this morning we're going to talk about some of the things we can learn from this passage about God's mission to bring light to the darkness. And the first thing that we see here is that God's mission does not conform and, in fact, smashes our expectations. The first part of what I read to you in verse 57 to 66 tells us what happens when John the Baptist is born, right? Elizabeth gives birth, and the whole community is around and seems to think that they need to give her advice or help in naming this child. Now, I don't know if you know what this is like to have someone offering you unsolicited advice. What, I mean, we just had Thanksgiving. Of course you know what this is like. You've been around your families during this time, right? Unsolicited advice. Someone tell you how you could decorate better, how you could, uh, you know, a better recipe you could use, a better parenting strategy, a better place to shop, a better way to meet someone. Unsolicited advice. Well, that's kind of what's going on here, right? Elizabeth says, we're going to call him John. And everybody's like, John? Seriously? What kind of name is John? You should be calling him Junior. And Elizabeth is resolved, right? She says, no, his name is John, and they pressure her. It's against tradition. None of your relatives are called by that name. It defies convention. So eventually they get around to asking Zachariah what he thinks. Now, he's mute at this point, so he's not participating much in the discussion, and they give him a tablet, and he writes down his name is John. Now, this is a strange way, this whole story a strange way, a strange mechanism for God bringing light into the darkness. It's not what people were expecting. I mean, consider, Elizabeth was barren at this point. They did not expect any children. Last week, we talked about Mary at the other end of the spectrum. She was young, unmarried, a virgin. She was not expecting any children. Two miraculous births set in motion the mission of God into a dark world. This is not what you would expect. And the name John that Elizabeth and Zechariah keep insisting is the baby's name. The name John means Yahweh is gracious. And that's what the Christmas mission is about. The grace of God coming into the darkness of the world. One of the things the celebration of Christmas is supposed to do for us is to keep us wondering. Keep us in awe. Keep us being wowed at God's grace. You know, one of the things I love about this neighborhood here right around the church is uh, the Christmas decorations 
that people put out, right? The, the houses are close enough together that you can walk around and you don't have to walk very far and you just see a ton of decorations, a ton of lights, and people put a lot of effort into doing it. And I like doing this with my seven-year-old because he gives you the exact response that you would like to see out of a kid in a time like this, right? You just have to walk by almost every house. He says, Dad, wow. Dad, can you believe it? Dad, wow. Uh, Paige and, and, and Crosley went to um, the Norwood Christmas Town yesterday, and uh, they were in line to see Santa Claus. And while they were in line, Crosley kept saying, Mom, this is blowing me out. I think he meant blowing my mind, I think is what he was trying to say. But in general, kids are, are great at Christmas time because they haven't lost the wonder, the wow, the awe of the whole thing. Next year, I'm going to do a little reading project on John Newton. I'm going to try to read everything that, that, that exists from him in print that he's written and uh, a whole lot of things written about him. But John Newton, if you don't know, he's known for his work as a pastor and a theologian and a songwriter. But before he was a Christian, he worked on board a slave ship. He was a, he was a human trafficker. But also, he experienced the flip side of this when he was down on his luck. He actually was sold into slavery. He became a slave for a time. God's grace eventually got hold of. Newton did an amazing work in his life. He goes back to England. He becomes a pastor. He becomes a force for social change. He counseled William Wilberforce, who was the one to work in Parliament to end the slave trade in England. And in John's, John Newton's study, in the very same study where he counseled and prayed with William Wilberforce, right above his desk was a picture frame that had Deuteronomy 15.15 on it. You shall remember that you were a slave, and the Lord your God has redeemed you. And John Newton, he never got over the wonder, the wow of God's grace. And of course, he wrote the famous hymn, Amazing Grace, which is a New Year's hymn, actually. It's actually titled Faith's Review and Expectation. You review the previous year, expectations for the next one, all with the idea of eyes to see grace, to be wowed by grace. So the means that God uses for his mission shatters our expectations. Two unusual pregnancies, two babies in the Christmas story, Jesus, who would be the light of the world, and John, who would prepare the way. God's mission did not conform to people's expectations. But secondly, God's mission comes as a result of God's faithfulness to his promises. Remember we said Zechariah was mute. He could not speak. But he was not born that way, so why is it that he couldn't talk? You have to go back to verse 5 of chapter 1. Zechariah is a priest. He's serving God in the temple, and an angel shows up and gives him a promise. It says, uh, you're going to have a son, Zechariah, and he's going to be a great prophet. Now, Zechariah is old. His wife is old. They don't have any children. They don't think they can have children. And he doubts, right? How can this be? He doesn't think this is going to happen. He doubts the message of the angel. And so the angel says to Zechariah, okay, listen, this is still going to happen, but I'm going to teach you a lesson for your doubting. And so he silences Zechariah for nine months. He loses the power of speech. And it appears he couldn't hear either because when people wanted to find out what the baby's name should be, they had to make signs, right, to communicate with him. Now, what do you think he did with his time? Nine months, couldn't talk, couldn't hear, no music, no TV, no 
Facebook, no distractions. Now, I'm speculating a bit here, but do you know what I think he did? I think that he studied the Scriptures. Zechariah was a priest. He was familiar already with the Bible, but now he had a promise that was given to him by the angel in nine months of noise-free opportunity to study God's Word. Now, I know I'm speculating here, but I don't think I'm actually too much out on a limb because when Zechariah writes his, on this tablet, right, he writes his name is John. He's able to speak again. Immediately, what does he do? He breaks into song, and the Benedictus is chock full of Old Testament references. It's almost as if that's what's been on his mind for the last nine months so that when he finally gets to speak again, what comes out? One commentator says he can find 33 Old Testament allusions in this short song. And in fact, isn't that the theme of the song that God is faithful to do? What he has promised from long ago? Verse 70, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old. Verse 72, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. As the Christmas carol says, come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. And there are two big promises that Zechariah sort of hones in on here from the Old Testament. The first is the promise that was made to Abraham. It's in verse 73 in Zechariah's song, but you can look it up later. It's a reference to Genesis 12, Genesis 15, confirmed later in Genesis 22. But God had made a promise to Abraham that through Abraham, God was going to make a great people that would actually be a blessing to all the nations. And God was going to be their God, and he was going to give them a land. He was going to give them a home. He was going to give them a place. And the second promise that Zechariah hones in on is in verse 69. It was a promise made to David. God told David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that one day there would come a person who would rule and save them, and he would sit on his throne forever. His kingdom would have no end. He would deliver them from their enemies. Now, in Zechariah's day, they were a people. They had become a nation They had a land, though they were occupied by the Romans, but they were still waiting for a person. They were waiting for the real king, for the one who would come and protect them from their enemies, from the one whose throne would never end. And this is what Zechariah's song says is happening now at that first Christmas. Zechariah's boy would be the one to prepare the way for this other boy, Jesus, who would come to rule and to save the people. Point being, God is faithful. He keeps his promises. Christmas is about God fulfilling his promises. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 puts it this way, for all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. Now, what would happen if we really believe this? Right? Not just sort of intellectual assent, a nod to, okay, this is true. But what if we really believe this, like down to the deepest part of your soul? One thing I bet that would happen if we really believe this, that God keeps his promises, if we really believe this, I think one thing that would happen is we would, we would read God's word more seriously, more devotionally, more, more regularly. Right? If God is faithful to keep his promises, then we'd want to know what those promises were, Right? Zechariah got nine months of uninterrupted study. Boy, I'd love that. (laughs) I don't see that happening for most of us. But listen, we still have access 
to the Bible, we have uh, an opportunity to read and to study and to ponder the Scriptures. You can learn His promises. Promises like 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, which says you can cast all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Promises like Matthew 6, 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all the things that you need will be added to you. Promises like James chapter 1, verse 5, which says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. Study, ponder, think, understand the promises of God. So God's mission is first, unexpected. Secondly, it's a fulfillment of these promises of old. But then third, we learn from this story that God is powerful enough to accomplish this mission. Verse 68, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Now, he calls Jesus here uh, the horn of salvation. And when I first read this, I thought he was talking about like a musical instrument, right? Like a horn that you sound. But actually, it's, it's the word for an animal's horn, like the horn of a bull. And, and for an animal, right, that's where their strength is centered. It's a weapon. Jesus is the horn of salvation in the sense that he is the strength of God's salvation. He's the way that God is going to cut through the darkness, however deep and thick it is. He's going to cut through the darkness and deliver the people from their enemies. And he reiterates this in verse 74. Jesus is the one who will defeat the enemies of God's people. He's the one who can bring you to God so that you can serve him without fear. And how can he do that? Well, Jesus came to teach, right, to reveal God's nature. Certainly, he came to heal, to help people in that way. But he also came to die, to die on a cross. And we actually get a nod to this in Zechariah's song. John would be, John the Baptist would be raised up. And what would he announce? He would tell people that salvation was coming and that the forgiveness of sins was possible. And it's possible because Jesus Christ went to the cross to die for our sins, to defeat the real enemy, the biggest enemy that we have, sin, that which keeps us alienated from God and separated from his kingdom. And so Zacharias says, when you come to Jesus, you can serve God without fear. He won't cast you into the darkness. He will bring you into light and new life. I love those phrases down in verse 77 and 78. The forgiveness of sins, the tender mercy of God. And listen, there are are some people who struggle with Christianity because they have trouble believing that they need to be saved from their sin, right? Difficulty believing that they need a Savior. Difficulty believing that they have contributed to the darkness. That's true, and that may be where you are this morning, and I pray that the Spirit perhaps would, would bring the truth to bear there. Just in my conversations anyway, there are so many more people for whom the biggest struggle, the biggest obstacle in coming to Christianity is because they have trouble believing that God could actually forgive them. It's not that they don't have a sense of darkness. It's that they don't believe, and perhaps you're there this morning, that God could actually dispel your darkness. Could he really overcome the darkness in my own life? He has the power, Zechariah says, to defeat your enemies, to accomplish his mission, to bring you to himself, and then to keep you near Do you believe this? Do you believe this, that Jesus can roll back the darkness in your own life, that he can forgive your sins, 
that He can make you new. If you're considering the gospel this morning, let me encourage you to come to Jesus, to acknowledge your part in the darkness, and then to ask Jesus to come into your life, to burst in with the light of His salvation. And if you already are a Christian, let me invite you to keep coming back to Him again and again as you struggle with sin. As the darkness feels like it might overwhelm you, run back to Jesus. He's promised to complete the good work that he has begun in you. We sang, O Lord of life, our only hope, your radiance shines on all who look to you in the dark. Emmanuel, come, come, light our hearts. God's mission is unexpected. It's a fulfillment of his promises. He has the power to complete this mission, we learn. And the final thing to consider is just that this is good news. Advent prepares our heart to appreciate, to understand, and to receive. All of this is good news. It is good news. It's God's mission to bring light into the darkness. You know, there were 400 years of silence between the end of the Old Testament and what we're reading about. And Luke chapter 1, at the beginning of the New Testament this morning, 400 years of silence. And in the last chapter of the last book of the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi said this. And it sounds very much like what Zechariah has to say in Luke 1. The son of righteousness, this is Malachi 4.2, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stalls. Does that sound familiar? It's a lot like what The final verses of the Benedictus are saying 400 years in between the last words of the prophet Malachi and the last chapter of the Old Testament. And now Zechariah is saying it's here. This promise is being fulfilled. Jesus is the light that comes like the rising of the sun, the light that breaks into a dark world. This is the message of Christmas, which the season of Advent then is meant to stoke us for, to get us ready to celebrate that God gives us a gift In Jesus, the light of the world, the light that the Apostle John says shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. We started this morning by asking, how do you handle the darkness? How do you face the darkness in the world? How do you face the darkness that exists in your own life, in your own heart? Mary Carr In her memoir, Cherry tells the story of when she was nearly overcome with darkness. She was 14 years old. She was miserable. Couldn't shake the melancholy that seemed to have overrun her life. And one day when her parents were out of the house, she tried to end it all by swallowing a handful of pills. Thankfully, she was unsuccessful and she wound up sick. When her mother and father returned home, they tenderly nursed her. They didn't suspect a suicide attempt. Instead, they attributed her vomiting to food poisoning. After a while, her father asked her if there was any food she could stomach, and all she thought she could hold down was a plum, but plums were out of season. So she went to bed that night. Well, the next morning, her father came into her room with a bushel of plums, having driven through the night from Texas to Arkansas to get them for her. And as she remembers that she writes this. She says, it's when you sink your teeth into the plum that you make a promise. The skin is still warm from riding in the sun in daddy's truck. 
and the nectar runs down your chin and you snap out of it or are snapped out of it. Never again will you lay a hand against yourself, not so long as there are plums to eat and somebody, anybody who gives enough of a damn to hold them to you. That's how you acquire the resolution for survival that the coming years are about to demand. You don't earn it. It's given. It's a story of light breaking into darkness in the form of a gift, grace. And that's what Advent prepares us for. That's what Christmas is about, God's mission to bring light into the darkness in the form of a gift, his only begotten son. Oh, come, thou dayspring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Would you pray with me? Lord, with Zechariah we cry, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. We pray right now this morning that we might stand upon your promises, that we might be able to plant ourselves firmly in the salvation that has come to us in Jesus Christ. And if we find ourselves even as some might this morning, sitting in the darkness, overcome or overwhelmed by the shadow of death or despair, we ask that you would come and light our hearts. In Jesus, light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is good news that we cling to this morning and every morning. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.